Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. Today's guest is someone whose insights I think are absolutely crucial in the wake of Trump's recent attacks on the post office and his unconstitutional executive orders around federal relief. Sarah Kenzier is a writer and researcher and author of the books The View from Flyover Country and Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. Sarah is also the co-host of Gaslit Nation, a weekly podcast which has tracked the corruption of the Trump administration and the rise of authoritarianism around the world. Sarah Kenzier, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. How are you doing today amid everything that's happening? Eh, as well as can be expected, I suppose. (laughs) I hear that. Well, I am really grateful that you're here today because your work in tracking the ascent of authoritarianism in the U.S. has been absolutely crucial. And as I've watched you get harangued and dismissed over the last few years for telling people the ugly truth about what's been happening, I have sympathized a lot because while I don't have anything like your expertise, I too have been labeled an alarmist for several years now. And being proven right time after time doesn't seem to have much of an impact on people in this regard. Yeah, it's a frustrating thing. I mean, just that word alone, alarmist, it's like, well, yes, we're we're raising the alarm because we're witnessing atrocities in the making and we would like to keep them from coming to fruition. Therefore, you know, we're going to be very detailed, very loud and try to actually have an impact so that people don't suffer. Like this should not be something that's considered a controversial pursuit inherently. But we live in this world of, you know, horse race politics politics or jargon-filled kind of abstract ideology that it's it's so remote. The discourse is so remote from the actual suffering and severe crises that people are facing on the ground uh, that have gotten exponentially worse throughout uh, the time that Trump has been in office and, you know, are the culmination in many ways of long-term trends. Uh, you know, but you were right to raise the alarm, not just on Trump, but on the pandemic. Um, you know, I saw you get harangued for that. Uh, I was right to raise the alarm on uh, a variety of things. And, you know, so are the many others who were dismissed alongside us. And what's really been striking to me is that people talk a lot about climate denialism and how people are dooming us by refusing to admit what's happening. And we are seeing similar dismissals, in my opinion, around the ascent of authoritarianism and fascism globally. Societies in general are held together by belief. And a firm belief in these institutions and this system is foundational for liberals. So now that we are seeing attacks on those institutions escalating in ways that are more noticeable and visible to the public, it's not surprising that Democratic officials are not handling this super well. Denialism around the ascent of fascism under Trump has never been as dangerous, in my opinion, as it is right now, with Trump's Friday night massacre at the post office and these executive orders around federal relief. We are talking about an election that's being sabotaged before our eyes in real time, while the Democrats keep repeating, he can't do that. Yes, it's frustrating because they've had four years to be prepared uh, for this outcome. And they, of course, witnessed an attempt uh, in many ways successful to create the exact same set of circumstances uh, in 2016, where there was voter suppression, domestic voter suppression as a result of the partial repeal of the VRA. There was foreign interference. There were um, insecure machines that were able to be hacked. And we saw Trump saying that he would not concede. We saw Roger Stone saying, there's going to be a bloodbath if Hillary Clinton, um, you know, were proclaimed president. So a lot of this isn't new. Uh, The Democrats have had four years uh, to work on it. They've had two years in the House. In March, the minute um, that the pandemic began to shut everything down, my first thought is, well, how are they going to weaponize this? How are they going to use this crisis? Because, you know, authoritarians never waste a crisis. And I think the only time I've ever written 
written in all caps on Twitter was like in early March, I wrote protect the United States Postal Service because I just I saw this coming a mile away. It's not hard to figure out that, of course, we're going to have to switch to voting by mail, which is better anyway. It's better to have handmarked paper ballots. It's better to get away um, from these insecure machines to begin with. But of course, they're going to then attack the Postal Service. And I am so sick of hearing that this thing can't be done or that thing can be done when they've been doing these things in front of our eyes for four years without consequences, often while announcing their plans in advance and therefore giving a competent opposition party or just any, you know, I don't even want to frame it that way. Like these are public servants. These are people who are supposed to be serving us. It is their job to protect us uh, from harm, both abroad and within our own nation. And instead they act like, you know, they're doing us a favor if they put in the basic kind of, you know, mechanisms that protect our vote instead of ensuring our constitutional right. And so, yeah, they've, they've been incredibly uh, slow on the ball. I was slightly more forgiving of this in 2016, but only slightly, because this was a new crisis. You know, we've obviously had uh, oppressive governments. Uh, you know, Trump is just as much of a domestic phenomenon as he is a, a foreign import in terms of his kleptocratic ties. You know, he was uh, the culmination, I think, of a lot of Reagan-era initiatives getting pushed through. But, you know, at the same time, the lengths that he would go, the uh, anti-American an anti-constitutional total disregard, uh, not just for norms, but for laws, uh, the long criminal history, the mafia ties, a lot of that was new. So it took a little bit of adjustment, but we have had four years and he has been a textbook aspiring autocrat. It is not hard at all to predict what he and his cohort are going to do. And we are now down to less than a hundred days until this election. And it is not just disappointing, but deeply frightening uh, to witness this level of incompetence. You know, at a certain point, complacency becomes complicity. And that is what I've been seeing from the leadership of the House Democrats uh, since they took office in 2019. And I'm also seeing some really disturbing denialism coming from the left, like from people who in an effort to keep history present in our minds, harken back to previous horrors as evidence that none of this is new. But flattening history erases distinctions that are tactically very important. Instead of warning of the extremity of what's possible, history becomes a nothing-to-see-here hall pass for the present. It honestly reminds me a lot of the show Westworld on HBO. When the robots encounter any interruption of their worldview, they look right at it and say, doesn't look like anything to me. I sometimes feel like I am arguing with those robots when I have to tell people, yes, there is a distinction between torturous prison conditions that shorten people's lives by years and prisons and immigration detention centers that have become outright death chambers due to COVID-19. There is a difference between the government not living up to its obligations to provide health care for Native people and our Native clinics being sent body bags when they request COVID-19 kits. Having an unalterable worldview is not a strength. It means your enemies will always get the drop on you because you will never allow yourself to see change coming or believe it will last as it's happening. But this is the end game of late capitalism. We're living in an era of ecological and political collapse. Obviously, the board is changing and what happens next will dictate the shape of so much. Um, you know, it has been frustrating to witness these kind of, um, you know, the, these sorts of arguments where generally speaking, people should be on the same page because the threat is so severe. Uh, it's so immediate. There are people dying now. Uh, there are people being badly, irreparably harmed now. Like we don't have the time to kind of sit around and, and bullshit. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, we shouldn't look at the roots of the problem or that the problems don't have have historical precedent, because of course they do. But one of the things that's been really baffling for me is, of course, you know, I come out of this field um, as an anthropologist, I studied dictatorships from the former Soviet Union. So that's my area of expertise. And when I discuss Trump's connections to Russian oligarchs, to these appendages of the Kremlin, and connections to Russia, and Russia as a brutal, authoritarian, hyper-capitalist state, I guess, 
yet sometimes such a severely uh, negative or, you know, a, a, a reaction of denial from the left, as if it's still the USSR, as if it's still communist, and as if these oligarchs weren't exact analogs of the plutocrats who have decimated the United States. And they are literally working together. Like there, there isn't like even a, a metaphorical connection. These are all people who are on the same page. This is a global phenomenon. They are banding together, um, you know, to strip apart countries, to sell them off for parts, uh, to widen income inequality, to monopolize uh, what kind of action can be taken on urgent issues, whether coronavirus or most notably climate change and the way that the resources um, you know, of our planet are going to be used and weaponized and destroyed. Like None of these are good people. And we as citizens, as ordinary people, I think are very much um, you know, more alike and more on the same side than we have anything in common with like Oleg Deripaska or Mark Zuckerberg or, or Sheldon Adelson or, you know, whoever you want to bring out as your plutocrat or um, autocrat or, you know, all of these uh, regimes, too, that have been working together, whether, you know, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Russia, Israel, Turkey, um, you know, and, and Western, uh, you know, aspiring autocratic regimes uh, like the one that's taken hold in the U.K., they are all part of this broader global crisis. And we as citizens of these countries have been victims to, uh, you know, these sorts of plots. So it really shouldn't be that hard for people, um, you know, to, to band together uh, in alignment on this. But I guess, you know, I can't remember the phrase or something about like the, the minutia of small differences or something that that's sometimes what I, what I see happening, because I do see a gulf, um, you know, between what somebody like Trump or, or Jared Kushner or what have you are doing and what most people alive want and how they see the world and how they see other people. Um, it's certainly uh, not reflected on in Twitter dialogue where things are, are torn apart and distorted uh, to such an incredible and detrimental extent. In the current moment, essential is often code for sacrificial. In your book, Hiding in Plain Sight, you ask people to write down who they think they are and what they think they believe and warn that any year they might accept and believe things they never thought they would. As the stage is set for a major escalation in the mass sacrifice of human beings to maintain capitalism, we are seeing that very phenomenon of people taking positions that they probably never thought they would. I know I have been shocked by some of the normalization I've seen around sacrificing people, including children. Can you say a bit about the further normalization of mass death under Trump and where you think it's headed? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of people, I think, do not want to discuss this at all. They don't want to acknowledge that this is happening because it's it's genuinely terrifying and it is different um, than policies we've seen before. I think in the sheer, the scope of it and in the capability of the government um, to do this broadly, uh, you know, they do not care if we live or die. You know, we're useless eaters, as the Nazis said. We're, you know, the shit that oligarchs grow their money in, as, as Ukrainians uh, say. And my partner on Gaslit Nation likes to quote that a lot. I mean, they, they see people um, as fundamentally disposable. And I think that recently, one of the reasons we're seeing so many more white people participating in the Black Lives Matter protests is I think coronavirus has opened their eyes to the fact that they too, uh, you know, to a, a lesser degree, but still are seen as disposable. You know, none of our lives um, are, are seen as worth anything. And I think, you know, Black Americans have long known that. They didn't need to learn this lesson now. That's how the system has been structured. And the same is true of Native Americans. The same is true of any group that's been a target of genocidal um, or brutally state-sanctioned autocratic practices in the United States over its history. Now that scope has been broadened um, to include nearly everyone and to have basically no protection under law. And the fact that it extends to children um, is one of the most frightening things I've seen. You know, this is an anti 
children administration, whether it's migrant children in internment camps, whether it's children who are victims of uh, school shootings and who then have their reputations and lives destroyed uh, if they survive those school shootings and speak out against them, whether it's children uh, stripped of health care, whether it's children who are going to face the brunt of climate change over the next few decades. Uh, you know, it, it's a very terrifying thing that they are so cavalier and so sadistic and so cruel in regards um, to children. And I, it's made me wonder about them because, you know, I feel like the GOP especially is functioning essentially as an apocalyptic death cult. And I always wonder, like, well, what is in it for you exactly in this literal scorched earth policy? Like, what does it mean for your children who are maybe in their 30s or 40s or for your grandchildren? And what kind of world are they going to inherit? And, and I, I don't know exactly what they think is coming. I mean, basically, I think they see climate change. I don't think they're climate change denialists. I think they very much know that it's real. And they're seeking to insulate themselves um, from the worst effects of it by basically hoarding all money, all resources, all opportunities for themselves and designing a uh, society in which they're closed off um, from other inhabitants, in which depopulation is seen as a good thing. A mass die-off in their eyes is seen as a good thing. And when I tell people this, you know, they often feel like it's an extreme position or it's some sort of sci-fi dystopian lens on the world, but you hear it in their rhetoric. You hear it in what Trump says. You hear it in the rapture fiends uh, that surround him making policy. You hear it in just the, the brutal dismissal, um, you know, for the fundamental sanctity of human life of everyone around them. And they have the money and they have the power and they have the will and they lack um, the morality. And it's it's a very frightening time. It's extremely important uh, that we get these people away uh, from the halls of power. Absolutely. Circling back to Trump's executive orders, the Democrats are talking about constitutionality, an argument that really only appeals to their already enthusiastic supporters. Hungry people who are afraid of losing their homes don't want to talk about the rules. As someone who knows what it's like not to have a place to live and what it's like to be hungry, not just ready to eat, but hungry, I know that most people would accept help from the devil himself in those scenarios. They don't care about rules. They don't care about decorum or formality. When people are staring down losing what little they have left due to congressional gridlock, they are not going to see the person who breaks the rules to give them relief as the problem. It's the ultimate trap because if the Dems win on the law, and it does appear that the law is on their side, Trump still wins the narrative. The story will be that he tried to give people relief when Congress failed. When people say the relief wouldn't have been sufficient, which it would not be, people will say that something is better than nothing. And that's an idea that definitely resonates with people who are about to lose everything. My biggest concern about these executive orders is not simply that they're a power grab, but that they're a PR move for power grabs. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's part of a long trend of Trump knowing how to shape that kind of narrative, you know, like signing his own name um, on the checks that went out for coronavirus relief is another one. I mean, I think we're at the point uh, where he has done so many uh, cruel things, so many just... Um, God, I, I'm trying to think of a word to describe recommending that you drink bleach uh, to get through the pandemic. So many like over-the-top awful ideas that I think pretty much anyone could, can recognize as, you know, this is not a person who has the interest of uh, the public and its welfare in his heart. Uh, this is not a person who is coming up with ideas to improve our lives. But yes, you know, the emotional element, the fear and the desperation that people are feeling uh, may change the way that they perceive his actions. And, you know, he, he was good at this um, during the campaign. Like, I'll never forget the day that he came out and said that unemployment uh, under Obama was 40%. And all of these pundits were laughing at him. They're like, what an idiot. You know, he doesn't even know basic statistics. Can you imagine believing that? And I just remember thinking like that, 
that's what it feels like. It feels like it's 40% because everyone I knew was struggling to pay bills, was working multiple gig jobs, was, you know, getting laid off and, and scrambling or in long-term unemployment, trying to work again. You know, the, the feeling was that it was 40%. And when he's able to tap into that emotional component, even if what he's doing is not backed up in fact or logic, um, even if he's taking credit uh, for solving a disaster that he caused, um, it could be successful. But to, to some degree, though, I feel like almost all of these PR concerns at this point are moot because I think they're going to try to rig the election. And generally speaking, they're not acting at all like people who are trying to win an election. They're not trying to please the population. They're not trying to expand the base. They're not trying to win people over. It's honestly rare um, for them to do anything that's not overtly sadistic. You know, their initial reaction to coronavirus was to make policies that allow it to spread as rapidly as possible, endanger lives, uh, keep people from getting necessary medical equipment like masks and ventilators. You know, this is a preventable crisis uh, that they have just basically worsened and then capitalized on the carnage. Uh, so for them to do anything that's even remotely helpful um, for people, even if it's to claim a win, like that's a more of a, I don't know, that's a phenomenon that I think may go by the wayside, especially if they have a second term, where I think that the sadism uh, will be much more overt. I don't think that they'll even keep up the pretense of having a democracy. I think it's going to become uh, more of an accelerated brutality. So this may be its, its last gasps on the PR front. I completely agree with that. I believe that if Trump is reelected, we will see that sadism ramped up. We will see a total lack of concern for what it looks like to anyone but his base. I think we'll see an escalation in mass death and a continued expansion of the prison industrial complex, not simply in terms of actual structures people are caged in, but in terms of hyper surveillance and hyper criminalization and how those things are used to control workers. I think we are staring down those things on a long enough timeline with neoliberalism as well, because late capitalism doesn't have a happy ending unless we derail it and transform everything. But here and now, I think we are talking about a brazen and ruthless level of escalation if Trump is reelected. I don't see how anyone could expect anything else, and I personally don't think I would survive four more years of Trump. At the very least, I don't think I would get through it uncaged. It's very frightening. And, you know, those are the stakes. And I don't know, I, I sometimes feel like there are two groups of people. There are those who, who recognize that and, you know, kind of wonder what will happen to themselves or their family or, you know, vulnerable people, especially within their family. And those who feel like they will just coast above it, coast above those four years. And I think maybe they cling to that. You know, I, I see that in our politicians. I see that in our punditry, you know, this kind of like, I'm going to look the other way. I'm going to stay out of this because maybe subconsciously they, they do know, um, you know, that we're right about this and that to speak out is to put yourself in some kind of danger. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that people are in danger. And honestly, the biggest one I think is uh, health is, you know, the discrimination against people suffering. Um, from chronic diseases, uh, the elderly, children, any population that was already vulnerable before the Trump administration has had the crises that they face exacerbated in these four years. And this is such a, um, you know, Nazi reminiscent regime uh, in the way that they view people, uh, you know, who, like I said before, the, the Nazi category of useless eaters, people who are disabled, uh, people who don't, they don't see as contributing in some way. And yes, you know, the scope of that is broader. And with coronavirus, um, you know, those numbers are, are going to increase. And I am frightened uh, by the prospect of what they could potentially uh, do with those suffering um, from that disease. You know, I hope I'm wrong in all of the hypotheticals that go racing through my mind every night. Like, I really hope I'm I'm wrong, but um, it's it's extremely important to get these uh, these guys out. Well, you know, I would definitely also pay good money to be wrong, but I feel strongly that if we are wrong, it will be because people accepted that these things were possible and tried to do something about it. And right now, not enough people are willing to process it. 
And you certainly can't stop something if you're not willing to admit it could happen. Yes. And it's, it's so frustrating too, because, you know, and I know I've seen you saying this as well. It's like, we have limited time. Like we have never had the time to sit around and figure out what's going on, especially when it was blindingly obvious. Like we had a time period where things could have been slowed, uh, you know, things could have been improved and now we are running out. And now I'm seeing, you know, even representatives like yesterday, Ted Lieu was on Twitter saying basically like, yeah, our election's going to be rigged. It's going to be an autocracy. And they were like, well, do something about it. And he kept writing over and over, like, what do you want me to do? And it's like, good God, man. Like, and, and he's actually someone who tried, he tried to force the house uh, to do, you know, a lot of things like use inherent contempt, uh, subpoena people, hold more hearings, get information to the public. But when I see this sort of overt, like, yeah, it's a foregone conclusion, nothing more we can do. I'm like, okay, you're finally admitting clearly that we have a problem of, um, you know, encroaching autocracy or honestly autocracy that's already consolidated to a certain extent. And now you're going to be like, there's nothing we can do. Like you always have to try to do something like you may fail, you know, that often these uh, actions do fail, you know, you fail and fail and fail until eventually at some point, you know, you may win. That's how all activist movements go. That's how fighting, um, authoritarianism has always worked. It's not some kind of easy struggle. I think it's often romanticized in the West, uh, in the U.S. in particular, but you have to to try and to see people just sort of throwing their hands in the air after they denied that the problem was severe. It's like the worst of both worlds. And when they do put up a fight, again, it's this quoting the rule book sort of thing that doesn't really appeal to everyday people in any way. If the Democrats wanted to pursue the constitutionality argument around Trump's executive orders and have it land with people in a meaningful way, they would have to couch it in the reality that fascism is ascendant. They would have to embrace that narrative, and they will not do that because it runs counter to the liberal faith in institutions, and that faith empowers them. Democratic elites are always selling a story about how they know what they're doing and they have a plan. It's a very the adults are talking mentality. They rely on their most enthusiastic supporters, thinking that they are playing four-dimensional chess at all times. They cannot admit how weak their hand is, and in some cases, they aren't even aware how weak their hand is because they have bought their own hype about these institutions and their ability to sustain them. What scares me most about those people is that they are convinced and insisting that these are the conditions that guarantee Trump's electoral defeat. When really, these are the conditions that prompt an autocrat to make the transition complete. And the catastrophes we are experiencing are lending him the cover he needs to do it. Yes, absolutely. And they're also, again, it's the same conditions in 2016 and the same mistakes made in 2016, where so many of them just assumed that, you know, Hillary had this on lock. And this was always something that baffled me. It's like, you know, that Trump is a career criminal. You know that there are hostile foreign states working to illegally influence this election. Like, it never crossed your mind that they might win, that they might succeed, and that if people who are willing to do this succeed, you think they're just going to follow the rules. You think they're not going to violate every possible law in order to protect themselves because, you know, that's what's at stake for them. Like people always act like, what does Trump want? It's some great mystery. It's the same thing any dictator wants, which is money, power, and immunity from prosecution. And it's been very frustrating uh, to watch the Democrats kind of plod along. You know, I, I feel like I'm in this dual reality where on one hand, you know, they're making these kind of uh, weak arguments about what they call kitchen table issues, you know, by which they mean healthcare and education. Of course, those are now uh, all in complete crisis because of coronavirus. And then on the side, they treat this issue of the fact that we have an autocrat in power. We have a mafia state being formed. We have a Kremlin asset in power, like as if that's something you can just sweep aside. And if that doesn't actually affect 
dropped the so-called kitchen table issues of, you know, education and, and the economy and whatnot. It's all linked. And I think that, you know, most Americans realize this, like you can just listen to Trump talk and you know that, you know, there is a broader agenda here and it's his self-enrichment. It's his brutalization uh, of this country. It's the abandonment of the public good and it's elite criminal impunity. That's all tied together. I am going to interrupt our conversation for just a moment with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a reader-funded organization and we need your help to keep this work going. It's hard to keep any publication afloat right now, but keeping a fully independent reader-powered organization afloat is even harder. We are a union shop, we haven't laid anyone off during the COVID-19 crisis, and we were abolitionists before it was cool. So if you think that's worth sustaining, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today. And one thing, you know, that really baffles me is the Democrats kind of argument about, you know, record turnout and their insistence that we have it. And I agree with this. I think record turnout is very important. It's important to at least show, you know, what side we're on, uh, that we are standing up against autocracy and so forth. But a really great way to demoralize people to the point that they don't vote is to have them go out and volunteer and canvas and vote in record numbers in 2018 to get a Democratic House and then do nothing when you have that Democratic House to help them, to not subpoena people, to not investigate people, to drop investigations, to make little jokes with Bill Barr, to do a half-assed impeachment that ignored the scope of the crimes, that ignored things like the abuse of migrants, that ignored uh, abuse of the pardon power, that ignored the Mueller report, which was, you know, the thing that they were so wrapped up in, and also their reliance on it. Like, people keep saying, like, well, what's the point of voting? Voting for you, like if you're not going to protect me, if you're not going to represent me, like why am I literally risking my life? Like in the age of coronavirus and violent voter intimidation, why am I doing this for you? And you know, and I have to say, please still do it. Like please still vote because the alternative is, you know, four more years of Trump and a rapidly consolidating autocracy that will be much worse than what we have now. Um, but you know, that is not an endorsement of uh, this Democratic Party. I like individuals within the party. But I think overall, um, you know, I worry that this is going to, you know, maybe drive down votes, but certainly it has put a damper on the kind of volunteerism and enthusiasm uh, that I saw, you know, citizens display in 2018. A lot of people who had never volunteered uh, in politics before were getting out there and getting active and they wanted accountability. You know, that was the thing that, that they were looking for. They wanted somebody to put a stop to this flagrant lawlessness, to this elite criminal impunity. And instead, uh, you know, they've been in many ways complicit actors. And that's a very uh, demoralizing, very disheartening uh, feeling for the electorate to have. Yes. And the same people who have not wielded the law to the fullest extent that they could are constantly pointing to the law and saying, as we were saying before, he can't do that. He can't do that. I find people's fixation with the laws that supposedly constrain Trump baffling. I'm at the point where I'm just asking people, who's going to stop him? Because I, too, can look up words that have been written down that supposedly dictate how things work. But I also know that the lines in a coloring book do not control the course of crayons. Do it and see what happens is the law of the business world. Worst case, there's usually, at most, a hefty fine. Greater consequences are so rare that the risk is viewed as almost negligible. People didn't recognize that Trump was entering the White House on a grifter's terms. They assumed institutions would keep his foolishness somewhat constrained. They called him a buffoon, but insisted he was not a fascist because he didn't believe in anything. I recently wrote a Facebook post outlining how I thought Trump might go about invalidating the election. And the post traveled pretty far, and there were people who were genuinely angry with me because they thought it was alarmist to even name these possibilities. To me, it's scary that people are still thinking that way. I think we have to name those things, and I think we are actually running out of time, as you stated, when it comes to having those conversations. So with that in mind, 
how do you think Trump will go about trying to invalidate this election or otherwise upend it? What do you see happening? Oh, God. Well, there are a variety of possibilities. Um, You know, I think in the background of the whole time period, there's going to be uh, violence, violence in the streets that I think he's going to encourage both from uh, his supporters, but also more of these, uh, you know, unidentified little green men types uh, that we've been seeing in places like Portland. I think that you know, hand in, not, I don't want to say hand in hand because it sounds like they're equivalent. I think at the same time after the election, we will probably see mass protests against Trump, against autocracy. And I think that's a good thing. But I think we're going to be seeing a crackdown on it. And so all of that is going to be playing out in the background. Meanwhile, I think that he's going to rely um, on the bureaucrats surrounding him to do the kind of legal maneuvers that Trump has always done, you know, going back to his days with Roy Cohn or Michael Cohen. Uh, where you have a a lawyer who's also basically a a fixer, a mafia lawyer type. And I think that we'll have a repeat of Bush versus Gore um, in which, you know, Trump is going to contest the results. He could use a variety of pretexts, you know, obviously the coronavirus. We've seen him also talk about, uh, you know, voting by mail, equaling voter fraud. We've already seen them uh, trying to prohibit voting by mail. Now we see with the Postal Service, they're trying to price states out of voting by mail. We have states that are already in dire financial straits, and they just more than doubled the price um, that it costs to send each ballot out uh, to a voter, um, you know, for, for the postage on that. So they're doing everything possible. I think they'll also, uh, you know, they're going to rig machines. I think they could alter tallies. I mean, the thing to remember with Trump is that it doesn't need to make uh, sense precisely. You know, he operates on his own logic. You know, this is the guy who invented a hurricane with a sharpie and you know if he says it happened he will just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until there's this drumbeat behind him that is echoed in Fox News and echoed in the GOP and unfortunately you know and this is where it really counts echoed in the court system he installed uh, Brett Kavanaugh or I should really say the GOP did um, because it was not Trump's idea it was uh, too sophisticated I think for that they put him in uh, in order to have like a ringer in there in case a contested election actually reaches the Supreme Court as it did in 2000 so that they will vote uh, in Trump's favor. And I think that, you know, it's basically so what I'm saying is a combination of, you know, legal machinations with a, you know, uh, sorry, (laughs) I'm overwhelmed by the sure horror of the situation, Uh, with uh, violence in the background, the violence on the streets, I think is going to prompt a lot of Americans to just say, let's just end it. Let's just get this crisis over. Let's just move on. Um, And at the same time, uh, you know, he he will use a variety of excuses and means uh, to state his case, but it doesn't need to be truthful, logical, doesn't need to have precedent. all this talk of laws of, oh, you know, somebody is going to bring him out in handcuffs and then Pelosi automatically becomes the president. Like, it's just, it's fantasy. I mean, if he's let out in handcuffs, then great. If I'm wrong about all this, like, fabulous. I would love to be wrong. I've been waiting for a very long time um, to be wrong. But he's not someone who will concede. It's just not in his nature. You know, he advertises himself as a risk taker, but he only participates participates in scripted reality. He only will run in a race that he knows he will win. He would not take that kind of uh, personal risk to himself. And he definitely would not take that kind of legal risk because if he's not in office, if he doesn't have the protection of executive power, then he could potentially be held liable for state crimes. And we've seen them moving a little bit closer to that uh, in New York. I mean, I'm kind of like, you know, I'll believe it when I see it uh, in terms of anything actually happening. But, you know, they're moving closer with his financial records and whatnot. Um, But yeah, it's going to be a very dangerous time. November through January, I think is going to be one of the most dangerous times in American history. People holding out hope for prosecution, it seems a little much to me. For one thing, if Trump loses and he's potentially willing to leave, I think one of the only cards the Democrats have to play is to promise no prosecution if he steps down. 
Oh God. If they do that, then they, I mean, it's such a profound betrayal of this country. And I am afraid that they're going to do that. I mean, one thing everyone needs to remember is that we have a recurring cast of characters here. It's like the political crime version of Celebrity Apprentice, where Trump just sort of like dug into the the dredges of history and dragged out people um, like John Bolton and Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and, you know, Jeff Sessions and installed them all um, in this White House where they committed crimes on a regular basis for four years. And, you know, and Bill Barr is another one. And the thing is, if there had actually been accountability for prior Republican administrations um, that committed massive crimes, whether Watergate and the pardoning of Nixon or Iran-Contra and the pardoning and the lack of consequences for the actors in that, or the 9-11 aftermath, where 9-11 was never, uh, you know, investigated in a, a true meaningful way, the Iraq war under false pretexts, the 2008 financial crash and the looting by Wall Street, like no one has been held accountable really for these crimes. And, and among the few who were, you know, were pardoned by Trump. And when you do not hold people accountable early, they will just come back and they will commit the same crimes and they will commit worse crimes and they will reinstall themselves in power and make life worse for everyday people and drain whatever power remains um, of the Democrats, of our institutions, of other places that are supposed to, you know, uh, hold them accountable and be a force for checks and balances. Like we will lose uh, the country completely, uh, even if it looks like we're winning, if they do not hold uh, these overt criminals accountable. And if they do not set a precedent that this can no longer be abided and that if you're going to commit these kind of acts. You don't get to get out of it because you're incredibly wealthy or connected or because you're linked to a transnational mafia. I mean, that's kind of the thing in the background of a lot of this is that, you know, these guys are mobbed up. People like Paul Manafort, people like Trump, people like Kushner, they are mobbed up and there is a culture of threat behind them. We saw this in the impeachment hearings where all of the witnesses had been threatened with physical violence, where Trump wanted to put a hit out on the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. We saw this in the Manafort trial and the Stone trial. Both the judges were threatened. The jury was threatened. That's the culture in the background. And I think that that explains some of the hesitancy uh, we see on the part of Democrats and of other institutional actors to really pursue this. You know, they're afraid of, uh, of harm, harm coming to themselves, harm coming to their families. But that will just continue. That will just get worse and worse and worse unless you try to stop it as soon as you can. And there are so many countries that are examples of this. Like I think, you know, Russia is a good one. If you compare Russia 20 years ago um, with where it is now, you know, you see this consolidation of crime. You see this mafia state uh, growing and people after a while um, adjusting their expectations accordingly. And it's it's really it's a tragic way to live. It's not a way of life um, that we should be encouraging, especially in such a vulnerable time with other existential threats looming, uh, namely climate change, but the pandemic as well. I am glad you brought up history and how this connects back with prior administrations. One of the things I appreciated about your book, Hiding in Plain Sight, was your discussion of 9-11 and how it made us malleable. People longed for simple solutions to complex problems. They wanted shows of power and decisive action. They accepted those things, even when they didn't make sense. This was a preview of the moment we're in, in a number of ways. What lessons do you think we need to take from what we allowed to happen in our names in the wake of 9-11? Well, I think one is that any action that is uh, advertised as a temporary policy put in place because of an emergency situation can be one um, that will potentially never leave or that will be in place for a long period of time. You know, And this, of course, has historical precedent uh, in other countries as well, like with the, the Reichstag fire and the um, policies afterwards in Nazi Germany. But I think our surveillance culture, um, I think things like the Patriot Act, 
fact, you know, we're still feeling the repercussions of those policies. And we also saw uh, really flagrant criminality and abuse of power, um, especially from people like Karl Rove, you know, who outright said that he and the, um, you know, the top elites of the Bush administration were creating reality that we ordinary people were just puppets to them and that they are history's actors. They define reality. They create history. You know, Bill Barr kind of said something uh, similar recently. Um, and that is how they that's how they see the world. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, an extension of that and how they see human life itself um, in the way that they see people as disposable. They see history as malleable. They see our circumstances as something that they mold. And I think that the only reason they were able to get away with this to such an extent was the incredible fear, the incredible panic and uncertainty that people felt um, after 9-11. And, you know, we're all feeling an incredible amount amount of fear now. We have a Great Depression level economy. We have a pandemic. We have so many of the familiar things uh, of our life abruptly stolen from us. And we have an administration that absolutely doesn't care about the human cost. Um, but I do think people are more on the ball now because we have lived through these crises, uh, you know, in our lifetime through 9-11, uh, through the Great Recession, you know, where there was never truly a recovery from that. You know, things did not turn around. Things did not get better. It's been a steady downhill slope. And now we're just accelerating down the hill. Um, and I do think people are, are more aware. I think in that sense, we're better off than we were 20 years ago. I think the internet has actually been helpful for this. It's brought activists together. It's brought information uh, to the fore that would have been otherwise buried. I think one thing that's actually very important for activists is to make sure that that information doesn't get buried now. All of these records of what prior administrations have done, um, all of these old articles, you know, old books. I think one of the next moves of uh, the Trump administration, if it continues to be in office, is to try to destroy um, those sort of archival accounts so that we don't have a sense of our own history. Because if we lack a sense of our history, we lack a sense of our present and we lack the ability um, you know, to formulate ideas of the future. And that's what they want. You know, One of the most potent weapons that we wield right now is information, uh, the ability to spread it, the ability to share it, to bounce ideas off each other. Like We should didn't take any of that um, for granted. And so that's that's a good thing that we have that, but it, it's uh, going to be in jeopardy, I think, in the years to come. I know you're not a big fan of the word hope. And I think part of that is that we use that word very differently. When you talk about hope, I experience it as a warning against hope as a passive emotion, a form of optimism, really. Whereas I picture it as part and not really existing outside of action. Can you say a bit about how passive hope or optimism is going to screw us over right now? Yeah, I, I think that that tendency, um, it goes hand in hand with American exceptionalism, which is something that a great deal of our uh, you know, fellow country men and women uh, suffered from where they really thought it can't happen here, um, that we're somehow immune from this. You see that politically, but I think on a personal level, you know, there's a, a difficulty in looking at the darkest possibilities and the refusal uh, to look at them means that the problems are not addressed. And if the problems are not addressed, then they're not solved. And I think there's also this sense of if things are really so bad, if they're really so terrible, somebody is going to come in and fix it. You know, uh, prior institutional actors or, you know, our agencies or, you know, some kind of savior is going to come in and make it right. And I saw a lot of that type of thinking over the last few years, particularly around people like Mueller, but now I'm seeing it around the election. That does not really pan out. So yeah, that's the kind of, you know, hope um, that I'm not a big fan of, but I also am not a fan of hopelessness. Like I, I try to just not even think of it in that way. I try to think of it, things in terms of, you know, principles and values and possibilities and, you know, what kind of world are we trying to create? You know, what kind of um, 
you know, how do we want to treat other people? What kind of society do we want to participate in? And, and, and think of it that way, instead of sort of sitting back and basically behaving like the kind of Americans that Karl Rove uh, was envisioning as these passive actors, as these little pieces, you know, on a, a chessboard to be moved around. Although actually, I mean, we're not even at that, that level of metaphor, I think, um, in their eyes. But, you know, I have things that sort of help get me through this. I mean, maybe it's more like faith or persistence or resilience or what have you. Like, I, I feel like that's a good quality. And that's a quality that, you know, everybody who has fought a um, dictatorial regime, whether abroad or, you know, here in America, um, you know, during things like the civil rights movement, you have to have that kind of persistence, you know, that moral clarity, the refusal to give up, um, you know, not just give up on your cause, but to give up on other people, you know, to abandon other people's welfare in their time of need. Like, I, I think that's just a, that's, that's like a sinful place to be. Like, I think if we all prioritize, um, you know, those who are suffering, those who are vulnerable, and then proceed from there, you know, then when we have some kind of clarity in our approach, uh, regardless what circumstances we're facing, what kind of administration is coming from the top, that's a healthier place to be, I think, because that's a place of compassion. Absolutely. Just speaking as an organizer, I think hope or whatever word people use to encapsulate these ideas should not be a fixed thing hanging in the air like a star. It should be a path. I think it rests in what we are willing to do and build. I think those of us who are engaging with movement work have a duty to cultivate mechanisms, relationships, and waves of active struggle that embody our hopes. Stagnant hope is mere optimism, and optimism is often a lazy affair. Latching onto the idea that things will probably improve demands nothing of us. An acknowledgement that human potential runs in more than one direction demands everything of us. That's what my hope looks like, personally. And whatever word encapsulates that for people, that collision of belief and action, I hope they hang on to it right now. And I hope they find their courage, because we are going to need it. In the months ahead, we are going to need creative protest, dynamic organizing, fierce networks of community care, and brave workers who are willing to shut down this entire system rather than surrender to fascism. To me, hope is the voice in the back of my mind that reminds me that when we are more invested in each other than we are in this system, we can shift the balance. I hope we all find that voice inside ourselves when it matters most in the months to come. And I hope we're as brave as the moment demands, because the world is at stake and people are worth fighting for. Absolutely. Very well said. Well, I am so grateful to you, Sarah, for joining us today. This has been a great conversation, and I always learn so much from you. Oh, same. Thank you so much for having me on. Can you remind folks of where to find your work? Sure. Um, I have two books, uh, Hiding in Plain Sight and The View from Flyover Country, uh, available basically anywhere. My podcast, Gaslit Nation, uh, is available wherever you find podcasts. And I'm on Twitter at Sarah Kenzier, uh, tweeting pretty regularly. Wonderful. We'll be sure to link all of that in the transcript. This is actually the final episode of the first season of Movement Memos. And I want to thank everyone who's joined us for the ride. I hope that these episodes are not simply useful to you in passing, but also resources you can return to. I'll be back in a few weeks, and while I need the break, I am looking forward to spending more time with you all. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good, and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.